0: Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the fall of the Aztec Empire, or to give it its proper name, the Triple Alliance and one bloke in particular who was instrumental in the collapse of this regional power. Last week, we talked about Moctezuma I and his role in the rise of the Aztec Empire, and I suggest that you go and have a listen to that one before getting getting stuck into this episode. Uh, but if you do need a quick refresher, last week we talked about how the Mexica people, they established uh, the city of Tenochtitlan on an island in, Lakes Tec- uh, in Lake Texcoco in 1325, and how Tenochtitlan grew in power and influence uh, until it was a major regional power in Mesoamerica, and by the, by the 15th century, it was on its way to becoming the, the principal partner of the Triple Alliance, again, what we today call the Aztec Empire. And then we talked about how the empire flourished under the leadership of the uh, Tlatoani Moctezuma the First, also known as, known as Montezuma the First, um, from 1440 to 1469. This bloke oversaw great big buildings, civil engineering projects like causeways, bridges, aqueducts, levees for the lake-bound city of, of Tenochtitlan, uh, and just a whole bunch of conquering and expansion. Moctezuma the First, he left the Triple Alliance in a much better spot than he found it. Anyway, if you're up to date with the story after last week's episode, it's now time. To continue the story past the death of Moctezuma I in 1469, and we'll speed on to 1519, which was very much the beginning of the end of the Aztec Empire. Today, we're going to have a chat about the bloke who was in charge at the time, Moctezuma II. He was the great-grandson of Moctezuma I, and of course, about the bloke ultimately responsible for the, the downfall of the Aztec Empire as a whole, the Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes. Uh, The Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire has obviously had far-reaching implications for the world. Its legacy is still felt today. Uh, But we'll get to all that. First, let's talk about how it happened. Uh, And there is a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about. Let's get to it. Once again, a quick thanks to Eric Macedo who put me onto this topic. Uh, Last week I got underway and happy to finish it off this week. Cheers, Eric. Good on you, mate. Thanks very much for the topic suggestion. Anyway... Here we go, picking up the story where we left uh, where we left it off last week. Let's get stuck in. We're going all the way back here, going all the way back to 1469, as I mentioned, the year that Moctezuma I died after reigning for almost 30 years. Now, we talked about uh, how last week he helped transform the Aztec Empire and left some, you know, obviously pretty bloody big shoes behind him to feel, I can tell you that much. In the fifty years between fourteen sixty nine, the death of Moctezuma the and fifteen nineteen, the beginning of the end of the Aztec Empire, there are a bunch of different emperors, or I'll give them their proper term, the uh, tlatoanis, who ruled the Triple Alliance. Uh, and obviously Tenochtitlan and the Mexica increased their stranglehold on power as the as the main partner of this Triple Alliance. The borders expanded, although as we move into the 1480s and beyond. Um, revolts and re- rebellions grew more and more common due to the decentralised nature of the Empire's government. We talked about that, a lot of, lot of individual autonomy. You know, we talked about the high level of autonomy last week that the conquered members of the Triple Alliance still enjoyed. But that came back to bite the Empire on the bum every now and again, as there would be, you know, an uprising that it had to put down here or there. But, you know, despite these rebellions, the Triple Alliance still continued to grow, still continued to expand its borders, I say, taking new, conquer new territory. Um, and it was very much a, a regional power, both politically and militarily. Um, at its height, to give you sort of uh, you know perspective of of where the Aztec Empire kind of ended up before its downfall. At its height, the Aztec Empire extended all the way from the Atlantic across to the Pacific, um, and in fifteen hundred, in the year fifteen hundred, it was home to around six million people. Six million people. Compare this with the Spanish Empire at the time, a world power which was home to 8.5 million. So really just a huge number of people, huge number of people are calling the Aztec Empire home. And uh, Tenochtitlan, uh, which obviously was the capital of the empire, it, it's estimated to have been home to around a quarter of a million people, meaning that it was larger than almost every single contemporary European city, with the exception of, you know, huge metropolises like Constantinople. So bottom line here, Aztec Empire, huge, powerful civilization, decentralised government ruling over cities, you know, grand temples, sprawling marketplaces, huge aqueducts, long highways, and in the centre of it all, Tenochtitlan, one of the biggest cities, not just, you know, on, on in the Americas, but actually on the face of the planet. But that all came to an end during the reign of Moctezuma II, who took the throne in 1502. He was, as I've mentioned, he was the great grandson of his namesake, and we call him Moctezuma Mo- Moctezuma II. Um, but the second part is actually a European appellation uh, to distinguish him from his predecessor. He wasn't called the second uh, by the Aztecs. He was called as uh, uh, he, w- he was known as Moctezuma Chochayatzin. Chochayatzin uh, translates roughly to "honored young one." Um, Anyway, yep, uh, Moctezuma Xocoyotzin he he plonks his ass down on the throne in 1502. He's around 36 at this point. Uh, and for the opening years of his reign, just business as usual, consolidating power in recently captured territories, co- you know, quashing potential rebellions, and of course, looking to expand the empire uh, even further at the first opportunity. And he had some mixed results in doing this. But under his reign, the Aztec empire was, was in fact brought to its largest ever size. So he did, you know, he did all right compar- uh, comparatively. Uh, to begin with, at least. He instituted uh, more social and political reforms, just like his great-grandpa. He further stratified social classes in Aztec society. For example, he forbade commoners from even working in the palace. So the the gaps between uh, people in different sections of society were, well, they were wider than ever, basically. They are wider than ever been before. But, of course, the event that would define this bloke's legacy was the arrival of the Spanish in 1519. And to talk about that... We've actually got to go and meet someone else here. We're going to go and meet the famous or the rather rather the, the infamous Spanish conquistador Hernan Cortes. Hernan Cortes, born in the uh, born in the crown of Castile in 1485, uh, which shortly after his birth would become the dominant kingdom in the new Spanish empire. And as Cortes grew up, the Spanish were, of course, very involved in colonizing the new world. And he headed out that way before he even turned 20. He, he headed off to Hispaniola, which is modern day um, Haiti and, and the Dominican Republic, and he found the life of a colonist to suit him very well indeed. He ended up with a large estate, a number of slaves um, as well. And by the time he was 26, he was a real mover and shaker in the Caribbean. He was part of the con- uh, conquest of Cuba under a bloke named Diego Velasquez, um, who then went on, he, he went on to become the governor of the, of the newly conquered island, this, uh, this Velasquez bloke. Uh, and uh, Cortez, for his role in in the Cuban conquest, he was uh, rewarded with another estate, more slaves, and as I say, he became quite a powerful bloke in this part of the world. In in you know in in the New World, in the Caribbean, ruled ruled by the Spanish, as it was. However, his relationship with Governor Velasquez, right, uh, it soured after some time because Cortes... A very, very ambitious bloke. This was something that he maintained throughout his entire life. Very, very ambitious, very avaricious, this bloke. He was very keen at ideas above his station, it's fair to say, and he was always looking for ways to uh, to advance himself in the world. Um, And this led to him, you know, basically uh, coming a gutter with Governor Velasquez, you know, who didn't like this ambitious and ruthless youngster, uh, always jockeying to improve his position. Um, but despite their sort of, you know, the sort of acrimony between the two of them, it couldn't be doubted that uh, that, that Cortes was a very able administrator and a, and a, and a decent leader as well. And so, in fifteen eighteen, Velasquez put Cortes in charge of an expedition to the mainland, modern-day Mexico, to explore it and get it basically ready for colonisation. Now, Cortes, he's wealthy, he's well-connected, he's an able leader, he's an able administrator. He quickly put together an expedition, organising many ships and hundreds of men very quickly indeed. But then the differences between these two blokes proved to just be too much. Velasquez very quickly realised, bloody hell, I'm actually I'm going to send this bloke off, you know, to do what is ostensibly a job for me, and he's going to end, he's going to emerge with all the bloody glory and all the bragging rights and everything. I'm actually sending off someone who is too competent here, and he's he's going to he's going to you know steal my thunder. And as a result, right just before Cortez is supposed to head off. Velazquez pulls the plug. He pulls he pulls Cortez right off the expedition. He says, no, mate, listen, I'm going to give command of this expedition to someone else. You're not going on it. Now, Cortez, he's not having any of this. Remember, he's ambitious. He's ruthless. He's going to do whatever it takes to uh, you know, to get ahead in life. And so he essentially commits mutiny. He actually just ignores the governor. He sails off with the expedition that he's organized, right, just, just straight up goes against the orders that have been given to him by the governor of Cuba here, Velazquez, in direct contravention of these orders, he sails off towards the mainland to fulfil the, uh, you know, the the expedition that he he'd initially been assigned with. And so it was that in February 1519, ten or so Spanish ships with five or six hundred men aboard them, as well as a few horses and cannons, set sail westward towards the Aztec Empire. Before reaching it, however, he stopped off at the island of Cozumel, where he was uh, he's very very surprised to find living there two Spaniards who had uh, who'd lived there with the locals for a long time after being shipwrecked uh, years previous. And one of them agreed to come along with the expedition, which provided Cortes with a translator. And this translator was very useful, uh, soon joined by a second translator, uh, the famous La Malinche, who, was, uh, who, who grew to become become more than just a translator for, for Cortes. She acted as a, as a diplomat, as an advisor and a confidant for him, and also uh, gave birth to his first son. Anyway, with translators in tow now, this journey continued westward and Cortez arrived on the east coast of modern-day Mexico knowing that he really, really did have to make a good go of things here. He's betrayed Velasquez, and he, so as a result he knows that this expedition has to be a complete and total success in order for him to basically save his own bacon, impress the Spanish crown, and have them overrule any action, any retribution from Velazquez himself. So after arriving on the coast, Cortez is determined, he's absolutely determined to make sure that this expedition is a rousing success. After arriving, he was actually greeted by representatives of Moctezuma II uh, and the Aztec Empire, with whom he exchanged gifts. Remember that the Aztec Empire expands from, uh, it goes all the way from the the Pacific to the Atlantic. So the moment he arrives, he's in the territory of the Triple Alliance. But he's a colonist after all. So, you know, uh, apparently after meeting this envoy and exchanging gifts, he also tried to intimidate them with the guns he'd brought how effective this was remains a bit of a mystery but he certainly uh, he was certainly showing off the uh, you know the, the the artillery and the arquebuses that he'd uh, that he brought with him and he also pulled off another classic colonist move because he claimed the land for the spanish crown just like that he, he established a settlement there he called this settlement la villarica de la Veracruz, and it's still around today in 2020 Veracruz is of course a famous port city over just uh, just over half a million people live there today but this settlement, it wasn't just a classic colonist move. Of course, that was you know, one of the intended effects. But the other one, it also allowed him to exploit a legal loophole to get him out of trouble with Velasquez. It essentially made him more or less a governor answerable only to the crown, not to another governor. Now, of course, this wasn't, you know, shaky ground for him to be on. But one of the reasons that he's, you know, he, he got off the boat, bloody planted the flag in the sand and said, all right, this is now Spain, is because it got him out of trouble potentially with Velasquez. And, uh, Look, I have to say not everyone was happy with this. There were plenty of people who he'd brought over that were still loyal to to the governor of Cuba and uh, and some of them actually even attempted mutiny. Uh, they wanted to go back to, to back to Velasquez and sort of dob him in, uh, dob in Cortez. And the reason I say attempted is because Cortez found out about it. He hanged the mutiny's leaders and then you, you may have heard a story like this in the past after finding out about this mutiny. He actually scuttled all his ships. Um, there's this idea that he burnt his ships after arriving to give his men mo- no choice but to support the expedition, you know, strand them there on the mainland, force them to give everything they had to the mission's success. And strictly speaking, it's not true I- exactly. Like uh, It's not exactly what happened there. Two-bit motivational speakers use this example, you know, while attempting to inspire people to commit themselves to risky success. But unfortunately, it's almost certainly apocryphal that he burnt his boats to, you know, in order to inspire his men. He didn't burn them; he scuttled them, and it was mainly done to prevent the re- very real threat of a mutiny from taking place, rather than you know being a weird bit of performative motivational speaking from Hernan Cortez. There, in any case, Cortez more or less forced the uh, you know forced the the people who were stuck there in Veracruz with him to support him by removing their their you know. Exit, uh, essentially. And it wasn't too long before Cortes was pressing inland along with hundreds of followers, including 200 or so locals that had been pressed, in, pressed into Spanish service. And they were the first of very many that Cortes had taken advantage of here. And his expedition moved through the lands controlled by the Aztec Empire until they, reach, uh, until they reached Tlaxcala, which was a confederation of smaller cities and towns who had actually managed to hold off Aztec conquest despite being totally surrounded by land controlled by the Triple Alliance. Now remember last week when I told you about the Flower Wars? Tlaxcala was the primary enemy of the Aztecs when it came to fighting Flower Wars and the Aztecs may have actually even decided to never conquer Tlaxcala entirely because it gave them a steady supply of prisoners for human sacrifice thanks to these Flower Wars. Whatever the reason, Tlaxcala was still free from the Aztec Empire and it was one of the most bitter enemies of the Triple Alliance. The Tlaxcalans hated the Aztecs, and Cortez took advantage of this. Because after arriving in Tlaxcalan territory, right, initially the Tlaxcalans were enormously hostile to the Spaniards, they're bloody fighting and, you know, trying to kill them, whatever else. But eventually, Cortez, he won them over and persuaded them that they had a common enemy in the Aztecs. And after learning that Cortes had, you know, hostile intent against the Aztecs, after learning that Cortes was basically there to topple the Triple Alliance, Tlaxcala jumped into bed bed with the Spaniards, formed an alliance with them and offered a great many warriors to Cortes to take the fight to the Triple Alliance and to uh, to Tenochtitlan. But here's the thing. This snake-like cortez he hadn't even made up his mind about how, you know, he was going to handle the Aztecs. He wasn't necessarily going to fight them. He definitely let the Tlaxcalan think that he was, however, and he gratefully accepted the thousand or so warriors that they offered him as a result. So with these new allies, cortez you know, he's just bolstered his ranks enormously and he pressed on towards Tenochtitlan, still undecided on what his move would be when it came to the Aztecs. He was considering taking a more diplomatic route. He, was, he also left the option of military force on the table. He really hadn't made up his mind as he headed towards the city itself. And as a result of this, as a result of this indecision, he wanted more information. He sent emissaries ahead of his expedition uh, to Tenochtitlan and another city called Cholula. This is an Aztec holy city, or it was. Uh, in Cholula, uh, the emissaries, right, that were sent there apparently were very poorly received. They were there to sort of, you know, present their their, their greetings and and do a bit of information gathering as well for, for Cortes. But apparently poorly received, just how badly remains up for debate. Some sources indicate they were, you know, just kind of ignored and Offered little in the way of hospitality, which is of course insulting, but not really that bad in the grand scheme of things. But alternatively, other sources claim that they were taken prisoner and tortured, uh, which, if true, you know, puts what happens next in into perspective. Because Cortez, after hearing of what of, of the you know what had happened to his uh, uh, his, his diplomats, regardless of which story you believe, uh, he'd heard of this mistreatment of his emissaries. You know, whether it was rudeness or whether it was torture, which. I mean, torture really is just a very advanced form of rudeness, if you think about it. But Cortes arrived in Cholula, and his response was swift and terrible. La Malinche told him of a plot to murder the Spaniards in their sleep, and so Cortes confronted the Cholulan leaders about what they were up to. With the you know whatever had been going on with the diplomats, with this secret plot to to murder all the Spaniards as they uh, as they slept in their beds. And the Cholulans look; they confirmed that Moctezuma had heard of the Spanish advance. They heard, had, you know, had heard of the alliance with Tlaxcala, and so therefore the, uh, the the order had come from the capital to the Cholulans to resist the Spaniards, however they could. They did deny, you know, the the torture and the murder parts, but they had they they did say that yes, they had been instructed by their emperor to hold up and resist the Spanish advance as best they could. Now Cortes... He did not like hearing this, to put it mildly. His response was ordering his men to burn the city to the ground. Cholula didn't have much in the way of an army, you know, given its role as a a holy city, it didn't ever really need to defend itself, and so was was totally defenceless as the Spaniards and their allies turned on the city, burning it to cinders and massacring thousands and thousands of people. So much for the diplomatic approach. Cortes finally has played his hand here, uh, and he has showed the Aztecs how he intended to approach things. And I have to say, the destruction of Cholula changed the dynamic between the Spanish and the Aztecs enormously. Moctezuma, now in the wake of what happened in Cholula, openly invited Cortes and his and the Spaniards into Tenochtitlan in the hopes of diffusing this rising uh, conflict you know, in, in the hopes of getting ahead of this tension that was very quick, this ill will that was very quickly developing between the two powers here. So Moctezuma, he sent emissaries of his own to uh, to to meet Cortes. He sent g- gifts of jewels and gold, hoping to placate this, you know, murderous Spanish army and, and come to peaceful terms before the whole thing came agatza. And Cortes spurred on by this. He melted down most of the gifts that had been given to him and sent them back to the Spanish crown ultimately. But he made full speed to Tenochtitlan as a result. He was prepared for both or either a diplomatic or indeed a military encounter once he got there. But after the, after the burning of Cholula, certainly he had escalated things quite, quite significantly. So he didn't have the advantage of numbers, Cortez. This is important. As he headed towards Tenochtitlan, he didn't have the advantage of numbers. But he did have hundreds of well-armed Spaniards in metal armour, bristling with swords and crossbows and even arquebuses, an early type of firearm. And the Spanish also had horses, animals that were entirely new to the Americas, and these horses were pulling carts with cannons in them. So despite not having the numbers, Cortes and the Spanish did outgun. The Aztecs quite considerably, and that's in addition to the ranks of warriors that the Tlaxcalans had provided as well, who all marched on Tenochtitlan alongside Cortes and the Spanish, and of course these weird spindly animals with long faces that most of the people had never even heard of, let alone seen. Cortez arrived to great fanfare on the 8th of November, 1519. He arrived in Tenochtitlan and he met Moctezuma on the great causeway that led into the heart of the city, which was crowded with onlookers. Moctezuma stood there, surrounded by other Aztec nobles, dignitaries, generals, dressed richly, wearing gold, jewels and feathers. He made a great big show of things and he presented Cortez with gifts and welcomed him into the city, uh, offering offering him lavish accommodation in one of the royal palaces and generally being very very friendly and uh, and welcoming uh, to these uh, to these foreigners here and Cortez boldly asserted that he had he had arrived as an agent of the Spanish Crown he was here to claim the Aztec Empire spread the true faith and end human sacrifice this is something that uh, that the Spaniards had discovered and uh, and obviously were horrified by and, and it was something that they said they were going to bring an end to and for some reason moctezuma just kind of went with it and this is not something that i was real this is it's incredibly puzzling there isn't just there's just not a very good explanation for why moctezuma just kind of rolled over to the spanish here there's not I mean, not an explanation i could find at least moctezuma's behavior after the arrival of cortez is is just so bizarre cortez later claimed that moctezuma simply ceded the Aztec Empire to him more or less on the spot because he asked nicely, which is difficult to believe at the best of times. You may have heard the story that the Aztecs believed that Cortes was an incarnation of the god uh, of Quetzalcoatl. Uh, and so the Aztecs immediately deferred to him as the uh, you know living incarnation of their god. This isn't true at all. It was an invention of the Spanish to justify their seizure of the empire and has no basis in fact whatsoever. On the contrary, most of the Aztec leaders, apart from you know the main one, Moctezuma II, um, various kings and chieftains ruled by, you know, who were tributaries to the Aztec empire, they all rallied against Moctezuma's capitulation at the arrival of the Spanish. They advised him to resist them, but for some reason, he just didn't. And, I mean, I, I read a lot about this and I really wasn't able to find out why it was that Moctezuma was just such a spineless weasel here. There was one leading theory that uh, is that after the destruction of Cholula, Moctezuma was sufficiently cowed to the point that he didn't dare stand up to uh, to Cortes knowing what he was capable of. The idea that, uh, you know, Tenochtitlan would face the same destruction as Cholula may have prevented him from acting, may have stayed his hand. But ultimately, this proved to be a very bad move, very, very bad move indeed, because Moctezuma's decision to just immediately lay down and be a doormat for the Spanish, welcoming them into the city and, and more or less handing them the keys to the kingdom, this emboldened Cortes to the point that you know after the arrival, the initial arrival in Tenochtitlan, he moved in, made himself very comfortable, and didn't waste any time in basically seizing full control of the city as well. He used his uh, he, uh, he he used the the soldiers that he brought with him to to more or less garrison the city and 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 bring it under his thumb. And within days, he made his move on Moctezuma personally, whose weak-willed response to these invaders meant that he was taken hostage by Cortes and ruled as more or less a puppet. He was still emperor in name, but Moctezuma was little more than a prisoner of Cortes. And now under the control of the Spanish, he ordered his people to cooperate with these foreigners. Many Aztecs were pretty bloody pissed off about this you know, this whole situation. But the th- here's the thing. The hundred years or so of empire building with this emperor at the top of the food chain, it, it, it had made its mark on the Aztec people. He was the emperor; what he said, it went. And so, people, for the time being, at least, went on with, uh, you know, got on with things under under this new sort of regime. Cortes sent off expeditions to track down the rich sources of Aztec gold. Uh, um, you know, we talked about the the wealth of the Aztec Empire last week, and Cortes, so impressed by this, he wanted, of course, a slice of the pie for himself. Um, and so confiscated a sizable portion of the treasury as a tribute to the Spanish crown while also sending off these uh, you know, the, these scouts to try to find where a lot of the gold was coming from. And any resistance uh, to Cortes doing all the things that he was doing was met with swift threats on the emperor's life. And that was enough for the Aztecs to go along with things, I guess i say again, just for the time being. Although the tension between them and the Spanish obviously only got worse and worse as more and more time passed But then, in April 1520, so some number of months after the, the Spanish have rocked up and more or less, you know, they're controlling the joint here, some interesting news arrived in Tenochtitlan. Reports of another, much larger Spanish contingent arriving on the coast. Cortes learned that Velasquez had sent another expedition, this one specifically after him, to bring Cortes back to Cuba Velasquez wanted him dead or alive. Now, Cortes realized he had to respond to this, and so what he did was he left behind a garrison to hold Tenochtitlan and took the rest of his troops to meet this new Spanish contingent. He marched eastwards, he ambushed the contingent late at night uh, under the cover of darkness, and after taking their commander prisoner, he actually won most of these new arrivals over to his side. He told them stories of how he had effortlessly conquered the Aztecs, captured their capital city, told them of the rich treasure that was to be plundered. He told them how their fortunes would be assured if they threw in their lot with him. And most of them did. Almost, I mean, well, not even almost, just literally, overnight, the size of Cortez's forces more than doubled and uh, quickly made ready to return to Tenochtitlan to secure this capital once and for all. But while he'd been away, hoo boy, things had not gone well at all. Back in Tenochtitlan, during the absence of Cortes, an Aztec religious festival had been held, um, and it resulted in the massacre of a heap of Aztec nobles uh, inside the great temple itself. Now, you'd think, yep, Sure. An Aztec religious festival, a lot of people being killed. That's put that you know, I'm sure that's right there on the script. But it was rather more than had been planned. We don't know for sure why. There are, of course, two sides to the story of the uh, of the the massacre in the Great Temple. The Spanish claimed that it was because you know, during this religious festival, of course, there were a bunch of human sacrifices planned. And when they tried to intervene to stop these sacrifices from taking place, a fight broke out that resulted in the death of more or less all the Aztec nobles there. But the Aztecs claimed that the Spanish had launched an unprovoked attack on all of the nobles after seeing them in their finest gold and jewels for the festival. Obviously, everyone gets dressed up in their glad rags and they're all, you know, kitted out in their jewels, their gold, their feathers, whatever else. And the Spanish had gone, oh, geez, I wouldn't mind a bit of that for myself. And so they attacked them and, and, and killed many of them in the resulting fight. Anyway, you slice it, here's what definitely happened. A bunch of unarmed Aztec nobles were killed without warning in the Great Temple itself, in the middle of a religious festival, so you can imagine the hoo ha that was a direct result of this uh, of this massacre. The Aztecs they surrounded the compound, the compound where the Spanish were holding Moctezuma hostage. Um, you know the, the threats on the emperor's life were now not enough to placate this. Uh, you know the, the increasingly angry citizens of Tenochtitlan, and when Cortez arrived back in the wake of this massacre. This only poured, you know, a huge amount of fuel on the fire. He's turned up with an even bigger army than he left, and all of a sudden, you know, it really looks like it's going to come a gutter. So, with a threat of a full-scale war here, Cortes, he turned to Moctezuma, and he ordered him to go out and address his people and tell them to disperse and leave the Spanish be. Moctezuma, he did as he was told. He stepped out onto a balcony to address the people beneath him. And this, as it turned out, would be the very last thing that he would ever do. Again, there are differing accounts of his death, so we'll never know for sure, but most sources indicate that Moctezuma initially was met with jeers and disdain as he you know, came out to, to give his speech. But after he began talking, he started to be met with bloody rocks being chucked at his head, and one of them hit him and killed him. And that was the end of Moctezuma II, the Aztec emperor whose greatest legacy seems to have been handing away the keys to the kingdom. However, the city was now in total bedlam. There is a full-scale uprising against the Spanish invaders, the emperor has died, and now there is nothing holding the people of Tenochtitlan back from fighting these invaders. You can call Cortes a lot of things, but I'll tell you this, stupid is not one of them. As his position worsened, uh, as he realized, you know, in the coming days he realized that his, his, even his newly embiggened army here didn't stand a chance against a a fully mobilized city that hated his guts and wanted him dead. So he ordered the withdrawal of all the Spanish forces in the city under the cover of darkness. And so began an event known to history as La Noche Trieste, the Night of Sorrows, that saw the Spanish driven out of Tenochtitlan altogether. But cleverly, Cortez, he went to the Aztec nobles and he requested a cessation of hostilities for just a week, right? He said, listen, we're going to get out of here. We just need a week to sort all our stuff out. We'll give you back all the treasure that we've nicked. You know, we just need a chance to get ready to leave. We'll, we'll, we'll give you back all the gold that, we'd, uh, that we've that we stolen so far and and we'll get out of your hair. But this was just a ruse. This was just a ruse to, to you know, get the Aztecs off their guard and basically let, you know, have them let their guard down so they could sneak out, That very night, so Cortes goes with this proposition, the Aztecs say, all right, mate, okay, get out of here, and then that night, not a week later, that night, right, he orders all of his men to pack up, get ready to leave, and bring with them as much treasure as they could carry. But this did not go very well at all, hence the name Night of Sorrows. As the Spanish attempted to sneak out, they were spotted by Aztec eagle warriors who raised the alarm, and Tenochtitlan rose to fight the fleeing invaders. As the Spanish tried to retreat from the city, the Aztecs pursued them, fighting and killing them on the causeways as they fled. Um, And many Spanish, they leapt into the water to try to escape the Aztecs who were fighting on the causeway. Many of them drowned because they were weighed down by the huge amounts of, of gold and treasure that they were carrying. They just sunk to the bottom of the lake and drowned straight away. And those who didn't drown were killed by the Aztecs who pursued them in, uh, in their canoes, and that's in addition to you know, those who were killed uh, while fleeing on foot on, on the causeways. The home ground advantage was far too much for the Spanish and their allies to contend with the Aztecs. They were used to fighting on causeways, used to fighting on water, completely outclassed their enemies, and all in all, the Spanish lost around half of their total forces, including their Tlaxcalan uh, allies. Almost all of those who weren't killed were wounded, including Cortes himself. It was an utter disaster for the Spanish. Thousands and thousands of people lost their lives that night, and for all, of, you know, Cortez's clever planning with the misdirections and the ruse, whatever else, his escape was not the, you know, the smoke bomb-like exit that he had been hoping for. The Spanish and their allies tried to limp back to Tlaxcala to regroup, but of course the Aztecs gave chase and confronted them once they were clear of the city, but here the Aztecs bit off just a little bit more than they could chew. Despite being overwhelmingly outnumbered as well as bruised and battered, the Spanish uh, the Spanish actually managed to win this battle against the Aztecs, the Battle of Atumba as it's called, principally thanks to their cavalry. The horse, as I mentioned before, was completely new to the Americas. There weren't horses in the Americas before, you know, in, in, in pre-Hispanic times. And so the Aztecs had never fought against cavalry. They'd never, they're the only time they'd seen horses when they were slowly walking through the streets of Tenochtitlan. They hadn't seen them charging across an open field. And so in an open pitch battle here, Cortes was able to use traditional European military tactics to win the day with his cavalry cutting down the Aztec ranks and chasing after anyone who routed. The Aztec had the, the Aztecs had the advantage when fighting in their city. They knew what to do when they were fighting, you know, in, in, in canoes, on uh, on on causeways, what have you, in, in the in the, the t- tangled city streets there. But the Spanish completely outclassed them with the advanced military technology of riding a horse, uh, in this open-pitched battle, the Battle of Atumba. And so were able to escape uh, and, and as I say, limp back to Tlaxcala in, well, not quite one piece. I mean, the losses of the Spaniards and the Tlaxcalans, they've taken hugely heavy losses, up to 800 Spaniards, several thousand Tlaxcalans. But the survivors were able to make it back to Tlaxcala to recover. And it's here that Cortes planned his retribution. Cortez sent messengers back to Spanish forces to the east, requesting reinforcements and resupplying, and was granted both after hearing of uh, you know, his initial success in, in, uh, in, in trying to take over the Aztec Empire. He also canvassed more locals, seeking allies. The Tlaxcalans remained rusted on foes of the Triple Alliance, of course, and there were plenty of other nations who were ready to go up against Channel uh, so Cortes did very well for himself. He rallied local forces to his cause with promises, with treaties, with bargains, whatever it took to get people on side to fight the Triple Alliance. Some subjects of the Triple Alliance actually came over to his side. They're unhappy with the leadership in Tenochtitlan. You remember how autonomous they were. And so they were seduced by Cortes' promises and actually ended up fighting for the Spanish as well against their former imperial masters. Cortes... Also had to rally his own troops. Many of them wanted to just pack up and leave, but Cortes did everything he could to keep them on side. He was absolutely, desperately determined to make sure that his expedition was ultimately uh, total, total and utter success because he knew that if he failed, he'd be punished as a traitor for, for, for defying Velasquez, the governor of Cuba, when he first left. Whereas if he succeeded... He'd be hailed as a hero. So everything was on the line here for for, for Cortes. And so it was that with a host of indigenous allies and supply ships arriving from the Atlantic, Cortes put the next stage of his plan into action. He set up shop on the banks of this enormous lake uh, on which Tenochtitlan was built, and he ordered the construction of a fleet of brigantines, heavy artillery was loaded onto these lake ships, which were intended to lead the fight against Tenochtitlan and break up the supremacy that the Aztecs had enjoyed on the water in their in their war canoes. But back in Tenochtitlan, things were taking a decided turn for the worse. It wasn't just the uh, the first contact with horses that proved to be deadly for the Aztecs and uh, and, and for I guess the population of the Americas more broadly. Another new arrival to the Americas was ravaging the population of Tenochtitlan. A smallpox epidemic broke out in the city in late 1520 while Cortes was rebuilding on the other side of the lake. The Spanish, of course, had brought the disease from Europe and had much greater resistance to it than people native to the Americas. And as a result, it devastated the population of tenochtitlan people were dying left right and center all over the pl- all over the place to this this horrific new disease and those who weren't dying from it were hugely weakened by it and many succumbed to the to the famine that came just after the the smallpox epidemic because unharvested crops were rotting in the field with people either dead or too weak to harvest them it even killed moctezuma's successor his brother quitlahuac meaning their cousin Cuauhtémoc took the throne right around the end of the year. This, this smallpox uh, epidemic, it, it brought a once great city to its knees. This new disease introduced to the Americas by the Spanish absolutely did a number on the Aztec Empire. And, of course, helped Hernán Cortés and his conquest of the Aztec Empire out enormously. It was instrumental in the fall of the Triple Alliance. And Cuauhtémoc, after taking the throne, as I say, right around the, be- the end of 1520, the beginning of 1521, he would be the very last of the Aztec emperors. Because later in that year, in, in May 1521, after almost a year of preparation, Cortes finally launched his attack on the greatly weakened city of Tenochtitlan. Thousands and thousands of people had died thanks to the smallpox epidemic. The ruling class had been butchered at the massacre of the Great Temple, and more and more subjects of the triple alliance had broken away to join the spanish and now cortez judged the time to be right to strike he sailed his brigs and marched his forces uh, towards the uh, towards the city capturing or destroying key resources like some of the causeways and the fresh water supply of the city the aqueduct system that i mentioned last week which again only further crippled a city that was that had already been brought to its knees this siege it took weeks Uh, The Spanish, they captured and held causeways and slowly advanced along them as they starved the city out. And the the Aztecs, to their credit, they fought ferociously. They mobilized as big a force as they could muster. But of course, it wasn't to be. They were outnumbered by the tens of thousands of allies, perhaps hundreds of thousands that Cortes had brought uh, on side with these treaties and agreements. They were outgunned by the the Spanish brigs and their gunpowder weapons that put Aztec war canoes to shame. And the lingering effects of the smallpox uh, smallpox epidemic and the famine that had followed it, it had left the population of, uh, of Tenochtitlan critically weakened. And so after some time, Cortes had captured every single causeway leading into and out of the city and was just content to starve the remaining population of Tenochtitlan out. And they were reduced to eating scraps of leather, drinking brackish water from the lake once the aqueducts were taken out, meaning that the smallpox was now joined by dysentery as well. And eventually, by August, the Aztecs had been worn down to the point that Cortes was able to march his forces right into the heart of the city and capture it wholesale. Tens of thousands of Aztecs were slaughtered by the Spaniards and their allies. Some historians consider it on the level of a genocide, given just how many of the Mexica people were killed as Tenochtitlan fell. The Aztec emperor Cuauhtemoc—he was caught while trying to—he was attempting to flee across the lake with his family and a good deal of gold and treasure. But he was caught. He was captured. He was taken back. He was forced to officially surrender to the Spanish and their allies on the 13th of August, 1521. And after that, he was taken prisoner. He was tortured, and later he was executed for treason. And that was just the beginning. With near total victory over the Aztecs, Cortes got he got well and truly stuck in to the exact sort of good old-fashioned classic colonial behaviour that you'd expect. Cortes owed his victory to the local allies he'd made. In total, the Spanish forces numbered at the most maybe 2,000 men, whereas the Tlaxcalans and the other indigenous forces numbered as many as 200,000. And around 20,000 of them died in this fight. So to say that they were instrumental in Cortes' conquest is an absurd understatement. We call it the Spanish conquest of the Aztec Empire, as the Spanish definitely ended up on top, but were it not for the Tlaxcalans and everyone else, there would have been no conquest in the first place. So when you think of all the treaties and all the agreements that Cortes had made in order to bring the locals on side, you can imagine a humbly grateful Cortes- You know, happily upholding his side of the bargain after such a rip-roaring success with his conquest, right? Of course not. Of course not. As news of the conquest spread to the Spanish forces to the east, as reinforcements arrived, all of these agreements that he'd made with the indigenous populations, they were torn up, they were scattered to the wind. A classic European colonial move here. For all the sacrifices, all the lives that were given by the indigenous people in coming on board with the Spanish as they took the fight to, to Tenochtitlan and the Triple Alliance... They had very little to show for it, as they were immediately made a tributary instead of the the Aztec Empire, now the Spanish Empire. And amongst all the other atrocities committed by the invading Spanish, of course, was the final and utter destruction of the city of Tenochtitlan. I mentioned last week that Tenochtitlan was located where you today find Mexico City. And given that Tenochtitlan was still standing in 1521, what happened to it? Cortes raised it to the ground. One of the largest and most impressive cities on the face of the planet was annihilated at the hands of the Spanish who built a new city, Mexico City, right on top of the ruins of the old one. And over the years, Mexico City, it grew and grew to the size it is today, one of the largest metropolises on Earth. And as it did so, the lake upon which it was built has been completely subsumed. It's been drained and emptied. Lake Texcoco just doesn't exist anymore. And as big as Tenochtitlan was, Mexico City absolutely dwarfs it. Almost the entire lake basin is now filled by it. Although in the center of Mexico City, you can still find the buried ruins of Tenochtitlan, a final relic of the Aztec Empire, which by now has been utterly and totally destroyed by Cortes and the Spanish. The final destruction of Tenochtitlan by Cortes was also the final destruction ...of the Triple Alliance of the Aztec Empire, and so ended an empire that burned hot and bright... ...before being extinguished in the blink of an eye. The surviving Mexican people who had fled Tenochtitlan in uh, in time, uh, they quietly settled in, in the surrounding areas... ...as the Spanish continued to colonise their new conquest, naming it New Spain... ...and using it as an overland conduit between the Atlantic and the Pacific. Cortes was richly rewarded by the Spanish crown for his success... Although he himself wasn't, uh, he wasn't satisfied with the re- rewards he received, of course, he, his ambition knew no bounds. Uh, the rewards included official induction into the Spanish nobility, the governorship of the territory that he had conquered, and like, just just, up, just a whole lot of money, just, just a huge amount of wealth. But of course, this wasn't enough for him. The story of Hernán Cortés, it doesn't finish here, but it's perhaps a story for another time. His most famous or infamous legacy is, of course, the Total Destruction of the Aztec Empire, an empire that was one of the most powerful and significant civilizations throughout the entire Americas in pre-Hispanic times. But with the death of Cuauhtémoc, the last Aztec emperor, with the destruction of Tenochtitlan, the Aztec capital, the Triple Alliance was, once and for all, destroyed. And its people were subject to Spanish rule until the end of the Mexican War of Independence in 1821, which led to the creation of the Mexico that we know today. And the Aztecs, as is the case with so many indigenous peoples and cultures in the wake of European colonization, they lost much of their identity. Although today, many of the 2.5 million Nahua people who live in Mexico can trace their heritage back to the Aztec Empire or its tributaries, and many of them still speak Nahuatl, the, uh, the descendant of the lingua franca of the Triple Alliance. But the Triple Alliance and its emperors, including both the mighty Moctezuma that oversaw its rise, and the weak-willed Moctezuma shocker who was there as it fell, are, in every sense, history. And as I said before, the Aztec Empire, it burned hot and bright, but its ultimate death knell was the crunching of Spanish boots on the sand of the Gulf Coast. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the story of Moctezuma, Shockey Yatsen, and the fall of the Aztecs. A sad story, to be sure, but still one that I think is very much worth hearing. So I hope you enjoyed it half as much as as I enjoyed learning about it. Once again, a very big thank you to Eric Macedo for sending in this as a topic suggestion because it really was fascinating to get across it. Anyway, that is that for another week of Half House History. Thanks for being part of it. As ever, quick plug for all of the boring, usual housekeeping stuff, halfhousehistory.net. You can find the contact form there. That's how Eric got in touch, and you can too if you've got a topic suggestion or a bit of feedback for me. I always love to hear from people. And if you want to support the show directly, you, of course, can do that via Patreon, patreon.com slash half history for as little as, a well, actually, no, for a dollar a month, you get basically nothing. But for as little as $2 a month, you uh, can gain access to stuff like early access to episodes and the, uh, the higher tiers, you get uncut episodes, the show notes, all sorts of bonus material. And you can even become an executive producer of the show if you crave those half history business cards. I can sort them out for you. But... That is that. We're going to close the show out, of course, with a question posed on Reddit, a question sort of, we're adapting this one of, uh, it's a question you may have heard a similar question before, but uh, Johnny Kanaka here has come up with a good one uh, that that very directly relates to what we've been talking about today. Johnny Kanaka asks, if Mexicans came from Spaniards and Indians, why are there still Spaniards and Indians?